And welcome to another edition of the Beer Vana Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, hey Patrick. <laughs> Look at us, like Johnny on the spot. Yeah, uh, here we are again, just two weeks after our last podcast, which is always our goal, but rarely realized. Yes, rarely realized, but um, <laughs> it's an, I always think of the fall as kind of uh, the start of the new season. I think it's, you know, because of school starting then and all. We're turning over a new leaf. We're so, going to be... Yeah, it's like our new year in a way, and... We yeah. can endeavor to well, you're, improve. Well, you're, you're kind of an aseasonal person in terms of professional life, but I'm quite seasonal in terms of my working life. So, Oh, that all may change when I myself can be referred to as professor. Well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so you're teaching, are you team teaching or individually teaching? This, this, uh, uh, for this year, I am uh, co-teaching mm-hmm. a class, uh, two classes actually, at Portland State University in a program, a professional program that's connected uh, to the university mm-hmm. under the auspices of the uh, business school right. on craft beverage. Uh, it's a craft beverage certificate program. There are six classes. Uh, the first two are core, and then you take two electives of the other four, and I'll be co-teaching those first two. And it's for people who want to get into the business side of craft beer. That's right. Yeah. So, and you'll be teaching online, is that right? It's an online class. Yeah. In the fall, that's the only teaching I'm doing as well, is online. Mm. Pretty soon, I'll make myself obsolete. I'll do such a good job <laughs> <laughs> automating. They won't need me anymore. Well, I, what I've learned is you have to do this terrible um, uh, rec- uh, video. And so I'm standing in this cramped little studio. It's extremely bright. I've seen the, the cuts of this now, and I'm all squinty because it's super bright. And I got nobody to talk to. I'm looking in the damn camera. It's terrible. I... No. I uh, that's Portland State for you. It's terrible. See, in my class, I'm just uh, Oregon State University. I'm in this very fancy dark studio where I have this big piece of glass in between me and the and the camera, and I can draw graphs and write on the glass. Uh, and um, what they do is they just take the image and they reverse it. So I write it as uh, as I'm looking at it, so it would be backwards according to the camera. But then they just reverse the image, and it looks like I'm writing in thin air and drawing these graphs for you. Um, it's really quite impressive, yeah. Uh, well, in my version, they put my PowerPoint slides there, and they just float there next to me automatically. So yeah. that's no writing. Like, yeah. I'm a, what when is I, this, bones and sticks? When I first got to Oregon State in 2006, I developed a, an online class, and that's kind of what I did. <laughs> wow, we're getting... 12 years ago. Yeah. We're getting into it here. Uh, uh, and I'm not even a PSU guy, but I'm feeling like I had to defend my, uh, my beloved uh, <laughs> Vikings here. And we haven't even introduced ourselves. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so you are Jeff Allworth, uh, uh, what, instructor, adjunct professor at Portland State University? I don't even, I think adjunct Along professor, with, professor, uh, professor would be polishing the eyes. Uh, what do they call it? Some of these are great. I think it's instructor. The terms, the terms of art are usually great when they bring people in, like prof, uh, professor of the practice. I think it's instructor. I think it's instructor. (laughs) You're also the author of Secrets of Master Brewers. You're the author of the Beer Bible. And out next spring, you're author of The Woodmer Way. And you can uh, find Jeff blogging at Beervana. You can follow his tweets at Beervana. And with me is Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University, the much self-lauded Oregon State University that Patrick has been bragging about. (laughs) National champions in baseball. Uh, Uh, Go Beavs. And you can find him tweeting at Beeronomics. We'll be, we'll be, we'll, we're, we're going to soon be brought down to earth because, uh, our, our, um, 
let's say, less lauded football team is traveling to uh, Columbus, Ohio, to take on Ohio, that apparently they're not bad at football in Ohio, at Ohio State. Yeah, um, I think even if they had fired Urban Meyer, that would be a tough, a so tough, that, tough sledding so, for the bees. So the warm glow of the baseball season is about to be, <laughs> come crashing down. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe we're in for a treat. <laughs> Spoken like every sports fan at the start of a season. Uh, okay, so um, what we're going to do today is uh, uh, basically give most of the show over to a fairly lengthy interview Jeff did with Michael Kaiser um, when while he was in Cooperstown uh, visiting uh, Brewery Omegang, as we talked about in the last podcast. Uh, Michael is the founder of Good Beer Hunting, currently the leading resource for beer news on or off the internet, and the two were visiting Omegang at the same time. Uh, Jeff wanted to hear about the origins of Good Beer Hunting, but he also wanted to do uh, go a bit a bit farther back in time and hear about Michael's early life and how it led him to beer. Uh, we're going to bring you that soon. Um, but first, of course, as always, we bring you the news. So we didn't really talk about the weather, but uh, one thing we can report is that the annual hop harvests are in now. And well, well, this is apropos of the weather because the hop harvests are early, right? Yeah, they were a little early. Um, I actually got some really interesting, uh, saw some interesting news on on Twitter from a, a hop grower. If you had hops in the field uh, in May, mm-hmm. when the early bloom came on, when it was very hot in May, then right. you had very early ones. But apparently most of the harvest, most of the hops weren't in. I see. And so they were actually pretty typical. So okay, they're coming apparently. They're coming at a fairly typical time, yeah, because yeah. we've had a, a, an extraordinarily hot and dry summer. That's right. So um, in any case, the, the harvest is done. And so you and I and everybody in the Northwest is gearing up for our favorite time of the year. Yeah. Fresh hop season. <laughs> <laughs> Um, to celebrate that, we're going to have an All Hops News update, plus uh, it's going to be an All Hop News update and an immersive experience. That's more right. on that in a minute. Yeah, more on that in a minute. We're going to tease you for it now. Uh, <laughs> what's interesting about the fresh hop season, I'm, I'm stepping on your lead, sorry, but is that uh, not all brewers celebrate it. Some brewers aren't all that enthusiastic about fresh hops, but most, I think, now are. Yeah. Uh, I, I was just re- referencing a... a um, a tweet I saw from uh, uh, Alan Sprintz of Hair the Dog, who's expressed his less than u- ubulant uh, um, appreciation of fresh hops. Yeah, when you said that, I thought, oh my God, are you about to say that he's doing one? Because he's never done one. Yeah. But he's still no, 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 no. That was my point. Was yeah, he yeah. did a tweet saying, I'm just not fan, a fan of the, of the green organic flavors. And yeah. So anyway, yeah. Most tell people us. Are, though. Tell us. What's going to happen? Uh, well, are you picking this up? Going back and forth, back and forth. Oh, we're already done with your bullet point? I thought I was stepping on your bullet point. No. <laughs> okay, so hop, fresh hop season is almost upon us. The Fresh Hop Festival's coming. Festivals are coming. This is a really good time to visit Pacific Northwest if you're interested in beer. That's right, all that. Uh, all that. And then, sticking with hops, <laughs> Stan Hieronymus uh, reveals in his latest newsletter, Hop Queries, that two new hop varieties are set to de- debut. One in the U.S. is called Zappa. Stan actually first reported on it two years ago, but it has just now gotten the trademark after the Zappa family gave their blessing. It was made, uh, I assume we're talking about Frank Zappa. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was made with a cross of native uh, New Mexicanus hop stock. Oh, yeah, I remember that. 
Um, Stan didn't give tasting notes, but quoted a source who called it a love it or hate it hop. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So apparently it's very pungent and, you know, strong. Yeah. So that'll be interesting. Um, Stan also announced the release of Ernest, which is an English variety um, that comes out of from Great Britain. Uh-huh. This one is quite interesting because it's actually the result of a cross uh, British, the British um, plant pathologist, Ernest Salmon, the hops namesake, made all the way back in 1922, so almost 100 years ago. Huh. The result uh, of a British and wild American cross, it was deemed too pungent <laughs> um, when, when it was grown in trials in 1957. Ah. Um, of course, now those flavors are in vogue, and Ernest is described as having uh, a fruity apricot character as well as citrus and spice. Uh, so thoroughly modern, even though it dates that, back to nineteen twenty-two. <laughs> yeah, that's that one's really cool. I mean, the fact that you have this, you know, they went back into the 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 archives and found this germplasm. I think that's what they call it, and um, dug it out and, and are doing it. It's kind of cool. So I'm looking forward to Ernest. Uh. And so the next bit is both a bit of news and is going to sort of segue into our, our beer tasting of the day, since there isn't anything obvious to do with good beer hunting, except I suppose taste good beer. Right. <laughs> uh, um, in a very rare occurrence, um, our podcast is often interrupted by the UPS guy dropping off your latest delivery from some brewery or another. Um, but in a very rare occurrence, I actually was uh, was um, delivered this uh, new beer that's coming from Worthy Brewing in Bend, Oregon. And it's called the Strata IPA. And the Strata IPA is a beer made with a new hop uh, out of OSU, a collaboration uh, between OSU and Indie Hops um, uh, that they're now calling Strata. It, uh, um, it had some X... X331, I think, was the experimental hop uh, designator at the time. Um, the Strata is the first hop that uh, is coming out of the um, Oregon State University's Aroma Hops Breeding Program, which is a collaboration between Oregon State University and Indie Hops. Um, Indie Hops happens to be uh, co-owned by uh, um, Roger Worthington, who also owns Worthy Brewing, if I have my facts straight. Right. And so this is a hop that they had access to through that through that um, collaboration, and um, they've produced Strata IPA and sent some to me with a bunch of other swag. Thank you very much. Uh, um, uh, but there's full disclosure for you. And so today we're going to try the Strata IPA. They actually sent two. I had one, uh, but I didn't tell you much about it. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing, Always smart. seeing what you think. Now, one thing I can't say for sure, uh, and it doesn't appear to be a purely single hop IPA. Should but I start from, cracking this yeah, thing? Yeah, you, should, you should go ahead while I talk. Um, but uh, certainly features front and center the, the, the Strata Hop. Um, the, uh, the Strata Hop has been um, uh, uh, described, well, I'll just sort of read you the press release. Um, it has notes of pineapple and watermelon with a whiff of herbal, herbal dankness, um, the citrusy flavor of mango and passion fruit, uh, and hints of peaches and pine. Um, it's been called sort of... Uh, um, uh, a uh, um, all-in-one hop with a very uh, diverse flavor profile. Um, Which is, it's actually an interesting point. I should do a blog post on this at some point. Um, the American interest in hops has led to an appreciation of um, you know, complex, dense, uh, kind of nested flavors mm -hmm. in these IPAs, which is a change from historic beer 
profiles where very often uh, you'd have one, one, maybe two different kinds of hops in there. And much like in, in cider, where you want to have a bunch of different apples so you can get a lot of complexity, now it's hard to get that kind of layered flavor profile if you only have one hop. So right. in, in cider, there's these, a few classic apples like Kingston Black that provide you all the flavor, the tannins, and the acid that you need to do a single thing, but they're really rare. Normally you have to do blends. So it sounds like Strata is the Kingston Black of hops, or they're positioning it. At least that's where they're positioning it, yeah. And that's why um, I would like to know uh, how much this features Strata and how many other hops are layered in. So I got a giant head, but it was because I was trying to get the foamy, uh, the, the sound of foam. Yeah, pouring notes. It's it's kind of got a, uh, a pretty classic IPA look. It's sort of straw slightly am slightly leaning to amber and the a little orangey maybe it's a little orangey it's uh, uh slightly hazy looks like a classic uh northwest ipa which was they were always been hazy yep. and before new england discovered hops yep <laughs> it's got a nice head as you have poured it's uh, got a lot of flavors as i was pouring it out i was really or aromas as i was pouring it out i was just really bristling with Aromatics. Yeah, and speaking of our blazing hot weather, this arrived on on like a hundred degree day, and the can felt like it had been sitting in a hundred degree heat for quite a while. And I have to say, it, uh, here's another. It's pit, got a pitch for cans. It's got a really unusual uh, aroma. It's got mm-hmm. um, some fruitiness, but it's very herbal, mm-hmm. and then there's like a grassiness and herbal quality. Um, a tiny bit of spice under there. What what do you want to yeah, offer your notes? Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to bring this on and, and try it uh, on the pod is because I was so fascinated by it when I tried the first can. Mm. Yeah, it does have a it has a real a real spicy. It's kind of a mix of citrus and spice. I would call it. Yeah, it's I, or maybe even stone fruit and spice. For me, it's more herbal. It's vet, it's got a you know spice is more. Well, I don't know. It's well, that's true. Yeah. But, yeah. Sorry. You have the nomenclature. I don't. You're the pro. Well, no. That. I mean, I, I just mean but, to, yeah, to distinguish. Herbal. I, I, I see what you say about grassy, but very faint to me. Um, anyway, I'll let you have the first, the first taste of this. All right. I'm going in. Mm, it's pretty spicy on the palate. Um. It's actually uh, as a meta comment before I get back to the beer. Uh, they've used um, quite a bit of. Um, mm-hmm. It's a pretty thick beer. There's a lot of res- residual sugars there, yep. which interfere a little bit in the presentation of the hops. And for my purposes, I kind of wish there was less malt character. Peel mm-hmm. a little bit of that away so I could get at the hop more. But um, yeah, it's definitely uh, more spicy herbal and less uh, like dense tropical fruity yeah and it's almost i mean uh did i read something about it being a like a, a sister of perlay something related to perlay you'll have to get give me a second to peruse my notes but the other thing i was going to say is it's also got a uh, a note of pine as well mm, so it's sort of yeah. herbal and piney with a little bit of citrus so more citrus on the nose or a little more fruity on the nose but not so much on the tongue okay let me go and see if i can answer your question <clears throat> it's got some resinous as you mm-hmm. uh, in the in the finish it's it's kind of uh, uh, yeah resinous very nice um, 
Yeah, and it's a little, um, it's a little, uh, as you say, a little thicker on the tongue than than sort of, I would say, the typical modern presentation of a uh, of an IPA. Uh, yeah, I can't tell you. Yeah, doesn't say. Might be related to Perlay. I think I read that somewhere, but also. I think a lot of things, so <laughs> one, one doesn't know. Oh, this is interesting. Um, one tasting note here it says tropical fruit notes, which I think everybody always says tropical fruit just because you got to say it with hops, but yep. they don't all taste uniformly tropical, guys. Yep. Quit using the word tropical unless they're really tropical. <laughs> but it does say uh, dank notes similar to that of cannabis, and I think that's that finish is that mm-hmm. when I say resinous, I think it's it's that herbal yeah. resiny finish. Yeah, and it has a little... Uh, bitterness that lasts on the tongue. That's a little bit more the utilization of the hop and the hop itself. But um, I I was quite uh, fascinated by the first can. Um, I had assumed at the moment at that time that it was a single hop, and I thought the complexity of the hop profile on this is extraordinary. If that's true, now I'm not so sure that it's just that hop. But but certainly this hop is diff- something different than mm-hmm. we've experienced. And this is a cool thing. We're seeing it with Ernest and Zappa and uh, Sabro, which came out this year, um, and all these new hops that are coming out. They're going to allow brewers to compose beers that don't taste like anything else. You yeah. know, they taste completely new and interesting. And this flavor profile of Strata, I would guess, is not um, exactly in the palate. You know, it's not if it tasted like passion fruit or lime or right. You know, Meyer lemon. It, that's where everybody's going. But um, a lot of people. There, there's certain a certain number of people who don't want lime in everything they drink, and yeah. so uh, you want to have a, a broader palate. And I think this this is nice because it doesn't chase that same exact flavor profile. It seems like so many of the other I, hops. Are. I think that's exactly right. I quite like the beer, and part of the reason I like it a lot is just because it's different than anything uh, I've had. Yeah, it's got a different flavor profile. It's very interesting, and it's and it's complex. It's got a lot of different flavors commingling in there, so it's fun to basically sit down and, as John Keeling from Boulder would say, have a relationship with the beer and That's right. <laughs> really get to know it. I, uh, I so, wonder if you can buy these as homebrewers. It would be interesting for us to try some experimentation. It seems kind of English to me. I wonder how this would go with a a, uh, a nice English bitter. Yeah, it appears that this would be a proprietary hop from Indie Hops themselves, and this is actually, from a business point of view, this is quite interesting because... As I said, there's a there's a ownership uh, crossover between Worthy Brewing and, and Indie Hops, and so right. this is not only promoting a new beer from Worthy, which they're quite excited about, but it also is a way to promote the hop itself, which they hope to sell some from the the hop the hop grower side. Which is fascinating. It's fascinating how this crossover is happening now. Totally. And so this beer, which is called Strata IPA, becomes kind of the flagship. Yeah. Uh, selling point for the, both the hop and the, the beer. So, so you would assume that it does a very good job of highlighting the hop itself. Exactly. If there are other hops right. layered in, they're probably, hopefully, quite subdued. And, and, and what we're really getting is the is the strata hop, which I imagine it is because I can't really, I'm not picking up any sort of obvious flavor cues from sort of well-known hops. Right. There's no, if there's citra in, or sorry, if there's a mosaic, mosaic. in there, <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite, uh, <laughs> quite subdued. I can't get the mosaic. Okay. So bless you. So anyway, so thank you very much, Worthy Brewing, for sending me beer. Uh, I cool. Quite Thanks for bringing it. it. And uh, anyone else wants to send me free beer? That's right. Go for it. <laughs> we'll, we'll put it on the pod. <laughs> okay, so let's um, let's move to this uh, fairly lengthy interview you did with Michael Kaiser Jeff. Um, do you want to set it up for us? Yeah, I'll just 
mention a little bit about my relationship with Michael. I met mm-hmm. him um, on a, a junket that Pilsner Urquell uh, sponsored uh, four years ago, almost to the day. We were in Czech Republic. We went to uh, we went to see the brewery Pilsner Urquell. Of course, we went to the hop fields where they were harvesting Saz hops mm-hmm. in. Uh, uh, the Zatech region, um, Evan Rail joined us, took us to Katna Samave, and I got to spend, I don't know, four or five days, and and Michael and I uh, were the only Americans, so we took the, air, the flight home together. So I got to know Michael as a person, and I didn't know who he was. I didn't, I had never, you know, visited Good Beer Hunting, which was a big deal then, so that's on me, but um, I didn't really know it. And so uh, I get to know Michael as a person a little bit, and I think he's a kind of a one of the more prominent figures in the beer world because of his podcast and because of good beer hunting. And I felt, uh, I've always felt like, uh, I wish people knew a little bit more about his history cause it's unusual, mm-hmm. um, which we'll hear here, uh, unusual given where he ended up. Right. Um, and I, when I heard we were going to both be in Cooperstown, I asked him if he would sit down and reveal some of that stuff because I found it really fascinating when we were, hanging out in the Czech Republic, and it's not so well-known now. So um, you'll hear about good beer hunting as well, of course, we get into that. But you'll also hear a little bit about, more about Michael, which I don't know has been out there so much. So, so I was excited to talk to him. Excellent. All yeah. right. So let's get to the the tape. We'll, we'll just mention as a sidelight that this was recorded on his recording. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so so if you're stunned by the, the professional sound and quality of the audio, um, that's why. I know what you appreciate from our podcast, however, is the artisanal aspect of our low quality of audio. So. That's right. So <laughs> don't... Never fear. Um, my field recordings are going to go back to their same usual quality uh, after this. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Okay. Uh, I am in Cooperstown, New York right now uh, at the Omegong Brewery at uh, Belgium Comes to Cooperstown. Is that what it's called? Belgium. I Belgium. Think. Comes, I think. Yes. To now you're making me doubt myself, though. <laughs> uh and I'm here with, uh, you've already heard him, Michael Kaiser, who is the um, maestro behind Good Beer Hunting, which I think is, it's safe to say right now, is the most important uh, organ of um, content in the beer world. Um, no shit. Yeah, I think. I mean, we've lost Draft Magazine. We've lost All About Beer Magazine. Uh, I, I think um, everything has moved online, and you were way ahead of everybody else on that space in understanding the capacity of um, telling stories through digital media. Um, yeah, I'd like to think that, I don't know as if it was prognostication as much as it was just seeing how fast the culture moves and like it just moves at a way faster clip than a print mag can move. I mean, that's true in a lot of industries now, even like music. I mean, there's a reason Pitchfork became what Pitchfork is and it's because they move so fast around an industry that was changing so fast. Craft beer is not that different when it comes to the culture part of it. Yeah, that's really true. And, and media is a whole other thing that we could talk about sure. and how that's changed. But let's, before we talk about the Elon Musk of the beer world. No, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Sorry. You yeah. could, yeah. Six months ago, yeah, I'd right. been like, that's a very Sorry. nice thing to have said. Sorry, I got to <laughs> update my priors. That was, that was, I didn't mean to be offensive. Uh, yeah, I can't think of a, 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 a an entrepreneur who is, um, not not reviled right now, so let's leave that aside. <laughs> anyway, before before you became um, before uh, Good Beer Hunting became the the institution it is, 
you were way back when a guy in western Pennsylvania? I lived in North Central. Uh, I grew up in a small town called Sayre, which is between Binghamton and Elmira, New York, right on the border. Okay. Um, it's part of the, what they call the Twin Tiers. Uh, so we're not far from yeah. home for me right now, really. This yeah. is kind of home territory, and the Finger Lakes is kind of territory for us. Um, but then went to school in central Pennsylvania in Lock Haven as part of the state school system before moving to Chicago. So I've heard a little bit of that background, and it's pretty fascinating. I think people probably don't know so much about that. So t talk about that. That's yeah, You I, have an interesting background. I'll try and make it short. Uh, you, no need to. <laughs> it, well, I started by, when I went to college, I wanted to be, I grew up in a very, very poor family. Like, there were, there were weeks where we didn't know where the grocery money was coming from. Um, and that was pretty tough. And so from the age of, like, being 13 and I was allowed to get a paper route, I was basically looking for my own way to earn a living as like security. Like I was a I was a kid that was constantly insecure about like food on my table and money in my pocket and like just surviving. Basically, it was it was tough. Uh, and in a small town Pennsylvania, you don't have a lot of opportunities for stuff like that. So had a paper out from the very beginning, um, and I was fascinated by taking you know by the possibility of helping other kids in that kind of realm. I was part of like Future Teachers of America when I was in high school. Found a lot of personal satisfaction out of being able to be a part of kids' lives and. So when I went to college, all that to say, when I went to college, I wanted to be a school teacher, and elementary education was my major. Um, I don't think I knew that. I, that's not something that, yeah, we don't usually go that far into the backstory. Um, but it wasn't until I was a junior in college, you know, getting close to graduating to go be a teacher, that uh, I read and understood the first poem for me. Uh, it never really clicked. I was I was an honor student all through high school. Was considered like part of that gifted program or whatever. I don't know what they call it these days. Where they isolate you and make you work on things like sat, you know, like building shit and like telescopes and like let you like pursue other things. I was part of that, but writing was always by far my worst grade. C's and D's all the way through. Hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I was a junior in college I read a poem for like a you know just a general ed requirement that I read a poem by John Donne, "Batter My Heart, Oh pers Three Person God for You." And I read it, and like I kind of had. Can, can you actually recite it? To no, this day? I wish I could. <laughs> I, I say the title like I could. Yeah, I know. Most people don't actually ask me to do it, though. So congrats I, to you on being a stickler there. Yeah, well, I felt <laughs> like it would be really spectacular if you did that. But uh, I wish uh, I, but I should practice it again. Uh, there was a time. Yeah, <laughs> I believe that. Um, but I read it and sort of looked sideways at it. I was like, I, th I think I get the hidden meaning in this, and it wasn't all that hidden. A lot of it was buried in enjambments and like language choices and like. You know, he was a great writer, and he put doubt into some of his vocabulary and wanted you to question it, and he wanted you to hear his own doubt, even though he was saying something very confidently. And, like, I just kind of felt like I understood the person writing that poem, I guess is what it came down to. And I r chose that to do my first close read paper and got an A+. And the professor was like, this is amazing. Like, you, like, you really dug into this. And I was like, how is this possible? I don't know how po poems work. Like, I've gotten C's and D's. I'm a terrible writer. Uh, so I got really excited about being good at something. Um, and so especially something that I thought was way off of my skill set and my radar. And I just became obsessed and started reading poetry constantly. I, I burned through that Norton's anthology, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you know what those are. Um, and then I did a semester in Scotland abroad and kind of fell in love with the, the, the Tennyson's, you know, and, and things like that. And fell in love with T.S. Eliot uh, and just started getting really excited about poetry and reading and writing and discovered that I was actually pretty good at it once I understood how it all worked like I saw the machine somehow mm -hmm. um, so by the time I came back after that semester abroad I was like I don't want to be an elementary school teacher anymore I want to invest my time in this tried secondary education uh, English as a specialty and very quickly was like no I want to produce this stuff like I want to write and started writing poetry and then 
it took six years to get out of college in my undergrad as a result because I switched basically at the very end. Right. And then went to School of the Art Institute of Chicago as a poetry major in their MFA program. And that all happened in like two years, like the, the whole switch uh, in about two years, which was thrilling but terrifying to me. I had no idea what that meant for my, I mean, there's somebody who thought they were just going to go get a job as a school teacher my, the whole time. All of a sudden I'm like, now I'm an MFA in poetry and there's one job in the world for that basically yeah <laughs> that's what i was my next question was going to be so uh what's the story with your you know, what was your career plan looking like when you had you graduated with an mfa uh there wasn't really enough time to figure it out but i at one of our alum parties uh or gallery shows as they mostly were for the school of the art institute uh, there was a guy there who'd been part of our program graduated graduated as a fiction writer i think and he came back and said he had gotten a job as a copywriter i didn't know what that meant but he seemed like he was doing just fine, and he, you know, he was wearing a fancy shirt and seemed confident. I was like, well, what? How did this guy get a job as a writer? Like, I have to figure out what that is. And uh, so looked into what copywriting was, which sounds so hilariously naive to say out loud uh, at this point. But once I realized that there was like people who wrote for a living, whether it was advertising or marketing or whatever, uh, that was kind of interesting to me because um, the one thing I was always good at, even when I got C's and D's, was I was pretty good at writing a zinger. You know, like they, they would always circle the last line of what I wrote and they were like, the rest of this is garbage, but this was a good line. Yeah, interesting. And so I started to like understand what that power meant. Um, and so all through college and in, in my graduate studies, the way I paid for living through all of that was as a designer, as a visual designer, because I ended up graduated with a dual degree, one in literature, one in studio art with an emphasis in design and photography. Um, so I used that degree to get me through the writing portion of it. So when I left, I was like, well, this copywriting thing sounds cool. I don't think advertising and marketing is for me. Like that seems kind of like, that seems like a real kind of like machine that you're cranking stuff out of. That's not really what I want to invest in. But design is a thing that I understand. I understand how designers work and think all through grad school. I wrote artist statements for painters and sculptors and, and things like that. That was like mm -hmm. one of the things I loved doing was interpretive writing basically. Mm -hmm. um, that, so I kind of, I put it to a headhunter. I was like, I want a job. I want to be a copywriter, but I want to work in design, not marketing. They didn't know what that meant, and they got me a they got me an interview at a li place literally called Marketing Incorporated. And I was like, "Man, you really swung a mist on that one." <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I went to the interview, and it was like whatever. And then I walked out of that, and I had a phone call from her. She's like, "I got a got a call from this place called IA Collaborative that says they're an innovation design firm, and they want a writer. And it sounds like what you were describing, but I've never heard of this before." So I went, and uh, they basically were they were an innovation strategy and design firm, which is a hard thing to figure out how to explain what that is, but it's bringing new products, services, whatever, into the market in a way that's disruptive. Like, that was their whole niche. Gotcha. Um, they needed a writer because they were writing a magazine for Hewlett Packard at the time that was like an internal magazine to t for the innovation department at Hewlett Packard to sort of socialize new ways of thinking and ideas and design methods to the rest of HP. And so I would interview these guys who invented like really rad stuff, like Raul Sood, who was uh, an acquisition for them through Voodoo PC, who was like this like super innovative gaming laptops at the time. They had bought his company and then like he started working with their video game laptop division. And like my job was to interview him, figure out what was innovative about that and turn that into a story that the rest of the industry would understand and realize like, oh, we can think like this too and change the way that we're doing things. Uh, so I wrote and edited that magazine for six months there before I started moving up into the, the strategy role and actually leading some of those projects that, you know, we like suddenly I was managing products and, and processes that were inventing those next new things. So I was working on telepresence for a year and a half, which was kind of a crazy idea of like super high end video conferencing things that like our entire rooms that you walk into 
you forget that the people on the screen aren't actually in the room. Uh, my job was to figure out what the user experience of what that was, which is basically writing and articulating ideas and metaphors for experience and all that stuff. So it all, it all came, I mean, the poetry degree did some amazing work. It just didn't go in the direction of poetry at all. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think people who get English degrees, uh, BFAs, MFAs, um, a lot of times they find themselves in adjacent fields, let's yes. say, where you, where you uh, need to express uh, something that is difficult for other people to express. And if they can figure out how to channel that, that's a superpower in today's society. Right. When you think about how bad people are at reading and writing and comprehending ideas and articulating them. Your ability to do that is a powerful, powerful skill. And if you can figure out how to channel that into a like a tertiary place, a different kind of industry or whatever, like you're going to be highly successful there. Um, so when did beer come into all of this? Yeah. Well, at one of the so that that original agency, I collaborative that I was working at, one of their clients was Miller Coors. This is before it was Miller Coors. It was Miller. Um, nice. And uh, and one of the projects that we had in the house that I wasn't necessarily on, but I was intrigued by, um, was we had to innovate secondary packaging for Miller Lite. And so every three months, we had to give them 100 new ideas, which is an astonishing number of ideas. <laughs> And we would just sketch them out on shitty pieces of paper and just be like, well, this thing. And well, what if it did this? You know, and we would do that a hundred times. And then they would whittle that down and whittle it down until eventually we had like 10 really good ones. And we would, you know, we would design three-dimensional mock-ups of it and make it look real and talk about how it would be used and where it would fit in and the costs of doing it. And we would, and, you know, we would show those to different kinds of consumers through focus groups or whatever and figure out what resonated and why. And like those would eventually become things that would theoretically go into the marketplace. Um, and through that project, it wasn't the packaging ideas that got me excited. Through that project, I learned so much about how the beer industry works mm -hmm. and how gnarly it is mm -hmm. and how confusing it is. Uh, and we would have an idea that seemed like a gangbusters idea, and they're like, that's going to add a penny to every package. I was like, what are we even working with? <laughs> <laughs> that's when you realize the scale of beer in America. Right. Um, and so that's, that, that really hooked me to think about beer from like a system perspective. And I got really, as a person who was sort of emerging into a strategic role, like systems and factors, like that gets really exciting because like the more gnarly and weird a system is, the more interesting little like things to unravel uh, you can find and think about and problem solve. Mm -hmm. uh, so I really enjoyed it. So that's what got me hooked on beer as an industry. Uh, and then I think it was, we were driving through Michigan, me and my wife, and we were we crossed into the Michigan border, Southwest Michigan, which is like vacation land for Chicagoans. Our first trip there, and I said, I wonder if there's any breweries up this way. You know, having never really stumbled into many craft breweries in my day, or at least not thinking about them that way. And we did a Google search, and Greenbush Brewing showed up, and it was right in the town that we were like passing on the highway at that moment. I was like, shit, well, let's go look at it. And so we veered off uh, exit 12 and went and looked at Greenbush Brewing. It wasn't even open yet. He was in there making stools because he was a carpenter like getting ready to open, wow. uh, Scott Sullivan was. And I just like kind of knocked on the window and I'll, and my basic, I don't know what I said, but I, my basic approach was like, what is going on in here? <laughs> <laughs> nice. And he just, he just gave me the backstory. He didn't seem to, I wasn't a writer at the time. I wasn't even in the beer industry. I was just a guy who showed up. Just a up, guy, yeah. But I had a lot of questions for him. And this is actually something I would like to encourage other people to do. As writers, we have amazing access, but Brewers are always willing to talk to people, almost oh, always. Sure. So, yeah, you should always stop and check it out. Okay. Yeah, do the legwork. Yeah. yeah can, it's can more interesting that way. Pop at least. in. They will show you your brewery yep. most of the time. So, yeah. He showed me everything. And uh, and he was just a really compelling like personality. And, uh, and so here I had these two things in my head of like this massive system awareness of what's going on in beer. And then I had this hyper-local, like, small-time, <laughs> we'll be lucky if he's a cottage industry kind of perspective, right. you know? Right. Um, 
and got, I just got really excited about that. And I started like I started kind of like jotting down notes and just trying to understand the beer industry more. And the more I started looking into what was happening at that tiny, tiny level of craft, I was like, oh, this isn't going to be cottage for very long. There's enough happening in the system here and there's enough white space at the local level. Like this is going to turn into a disruptive niche like in the next five years, like easily enough. Um, because everywhere I went, suddenly I started finding more Scott Sullivans. And I was like, right. oh, these guys are everywhere and they're not networked. They don't know each other exist, really. They're all just kind of taking a, you know, winging a prayer, just trying to give it a shot. Right. You get enough of those kind of people doing something, and all of a sudden you have an emergent disruption in the marketplace. And that's when I got really excited about craft as like a business model, but in addition to like drinking the beer and being excited about the beer itself. But that still wasn't necessarily, I think, when Good Beer Hunting started. That happened when that very specifically in a moment in time I was at a beer school with Greg Brown who was the brewer at Mickey Finn's in Libertyville Illinois he would come to the map room every month and do beer school and he would just make up themes because there was very little craft beer at the time and one of them was canned beers you know like that was the theme what year are we talking about here by the way uh, it's got to be 2003-ish around then okay. maybe um you got to give me two or three years on it that's fine I've We're got kids now nothing yeah, makes we, sense yeah, I, I understand that <laughs> um, we, we understand the era though yeah, you don't understand the phase that we were in. And, uh, and you know, so one of them was canned beers, one of them was farmhouse sales. And I was like, what the hell does that even mean? Right. And so we went, just, you know, it was a nice, it was a cheap way to get fucked up during the middle of the day and enjoy, like, delicious beers and learn about them. And at some point he would become, like, the Charlie Brown teacher, you know, like, wah, 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 wah. And we are just like, this is good. Right. That was our tasting notes. Had my first days <laughs> on DuPont. That's, that's what, and I was like, this is, this is another realm for me. I've never had anything like this. Yeah. Uh, I got really excited. Me and my buddy Doug uh, went to West Lakeview Liquors, bought everything that said Cezanne on it, which was like seven things, and they're all from Belgium. Mm. Um, Interesting. Went home, drank them all. I took some. I went and bought more and started drinking them, and I was like, "This is really compelling." And uh, and I bought the URL Good Beer Hunting like the next day. Um, Fascinating. And I went up to Doug. I was like, "Hey, like I bought this URL. Let's blog to each other so that like when we're traveling and trying new beers, like you and I can exchange tasting notes." That's all it was going to be was me and Doug talking to each other. <laughs> and his response was, and I was I was brokenhearted. The reason it was called Good Beer Hunting at the time was because I happened to have two photos of one of one of each of us, me and Doug, playing Big Buck Hunter with the big orange guns uh, at the Ashland Tap House or whatever it was called, <laughs> getting wasted on Scotty Karate's. I had a picture of us on my Motorola Razor, like with those guns in our hands, and I was like, "Oh, these are profile pictures. Like, obviously, these are the only photos I have of me and Doug." And so we called it Good Beer Hunting, based off of that. Wow. Pitched pitched it all to Doug with like this like youthful excitement, and he was like, "Ah, man, I don't really like the internet and blogs, and I don't want to do that." <laughs> just that was the end of the road for Doug. <laughs> so I just started doing it and like writing to myself basically, and that that was where that all began. Um, that's the technical origin of the URL existing in the world. Okay, so this long preceded uh, any kind of uh, work that you were doing for breweries, which was a oh, whole another track. Yeah, that's a whole another generation of GBH for sure. All right, well, let's let's walk through GBH. <laughs> so now you're, uh, I, I recognize uh, this identically. Uh, I think we all have uh, anybody who started a blog or you know a site on the internet where you just talked about beer had an experience like you did. Sure. Uh, but then they mostly die. But yours didn't die. Yeah. It continued on. So what happened? Well, the photography was a big part of that. Um, at the time, there weren't a lot of people taking very good photos of breweries. Right. Uh, so people started, it started to get, it was read much more widely than it deserved to be because of that. And, and this is also before uh, the era of, of uh, cell phone, um, smartphones oh, and, sure. um, and social media. So Absolutely. It was, a, it was for people who are not so old. 
there was a, a huge dearth of this yep. stuff. You could find these crude, terrible little photos and super low resolution on the internet. And, yep. and they're like, I went here and I drank this. And yeah. like that was kind of beer blogging at the time. Yeah. Um, it's actually, it was, so wanting to take better photos for it was what made me buy a camera and start shooting photography again. Because when I graduated from undergrad, you know, with a, with a concentration in design and photography, a digital camera, a good one, was $12,000. Right. There was no way in the universe I was ever going to get one. And so I was like, well, I hate the darkroom. I hate film. Like, I'm more on the design and, like, digital side. I was like, I guess I just don't take photos anymore. And, like, that was just it. And because of this project, I went out and bought a Panasonic GF1, which was a sort of a new generation of mirrorless digital cameras that were, like, pretty good. Hmm. Um, and I could afford it. You know, it was, like, 500 bucks or something. And I was like, I'm going to. And so I started shooting again. And getting that feedback from people that they were excited about the blog because of the photos, like, really motivated me to kind of get back into the swing of things. I will um, say, I will. Uh, I want to just uh, insert a personal anecdote, uh, which is I met you when we were together on a junket in uh, Prague. Yeah. Uh, touring the, uh, invited by Pilsner or Quell. Uh, yep, and we toured a lot. And we toured a lot. And I was fascinated to watch you carry around uh, a giant case of, lenses and this ginormous camera which had to weigh a ton yeah oh that time i must have i probably had upgraded to the the canon yeah i don't know yeah it was a big camera it was a, <laughs> i had a point shoot right. uh <laughs> and you took seventy-three thousand photos a lot of photos <laughs> you took a million photos i thought who is this guy what's happening oh funny yeah yeah and i didn't do anything with him for about five years <laughs> yeah it's true until <laughs> we hired evan to write for us yeah so yeah. that's i i saw i saw your uh <laughs> focus on photography which is definitely uh distinguishes you from some other people and you do it in a way that is more professional uh and now anybody with a uh you know an iphone can take yeah a photo. i mean the the photography of gbh i still think is among the best but it's not its differentiator anymore like the rest of the world caught up to that technical capability pretty quickly right yeah. well but the at the time that's what it that's what got it more exposure than just being a guy in chicago writing about beer like people around the country were looking at it which surprised me uh i wasn't seeing i didn't see that forthcoming well um, it also goes to show the the value of uh, visual elements in storytelling yeah, for and better and worse yeah right because uh, at the time i remember uh there was a designer friend of mine that sat next to me at work and i told him like, he thought the name of the blog was hilarious he's like let me design a little header for you and so he did this like cool little header and this was when i was just hacking together a tumblr and um and based on that header and the photography, I remember there being people that were commenting, being like, who's behind this blog? This is too slick to just be a blogger. Like, they were worried about the money, like, from day one. Right, right, right. <laughs> Which I get that. has never stopped. They never worried about that with me. They're always like, this is insanely <laughs> this is crude. <laughs> this guy is legit. <laughs> that's, the, that's aesthetics and craft marketing <laughs> that's right. 101 for you. Right. Like, let's just get some silver cans and put stickers on them. Everybody will think we're small. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so we had that we had that skill set, which was great. That differentiated us. Um, and at the second agency I worked at, we ended up with a project. And, and this is fun to talk about because this is this is going to break some people's brains. But um, they broke my brain at the time. We had a project from AB InBev at the time, mm -hmm. and it was specifically out of the InBev office out of New York. And that pro you know that project was worked on by a totally different team. I was working mostly on like Samsung products at the time, and uh, and they got a call one day because they were. It turned out that InBev was nervous that Michael Kaiser of Good Beer Hunting worked there. And they were nervous that I was going to find out what they were working on and, like, tell everybody in craft beer or something. It was just, like, this bizarrely paranoid thing. 
And of so course, I, that makes total sense. I me. was literally physically barred from entering that part of the office. <laughs> <laughs> and then over, and this all happened within a week. So there was that, and I was like, "That's the craziest thing I've ever heard." I also don't care at all. Uh, and over lunch one day, Medium launched Medium.com, mm-hmm. this like new blogging service. And at the time, I was still hacking together a Tumblr. I was like, oh, I wonder if this would be like an interesting new platform to like try writing about beer on. And so I just sat down over lunch and like cranked out this article called Meet Your Maker with the basic premise being um, that the largest brewers in the world are going to figure out where and when and how to make and sell these beers because there's a market for them emerging. Right. Like the IPA is going to become the possession of the largest brewers in the world at some point because there's going to be enough consumers looking for one. Uh, and that's just a natural given. Like we have to assume that's going to happen. But the one thing that they're going to really struggle to to replicate or, or own themselves is a connection with the drinker to the maker. Right. Uh, and so the piece was called Meet Your Makers based on the idea that like consumers right now are going through a much larger trend than just beer of wanting to know who makes their stuff, where it comes from, and why it's interesting. And that's going to be the hardest part for somebody like a, an AB or a Miller Coors to replicate. And, and AB has continued year after year to try to make that connection taking the, to the Taking the best run they can at yeah, it, for right. sure. But... Th- Somebody at, uh, it was a, he was the manager of uh, Shock Top at the time at AB, printed that out, put it on his boss's desk, who was the manager of the high end at the time when it was mostly just an import division, uh-huh. and said, read this. Yeah, because this would have been before uh, Goose Island, yeah? Yep, it was, yeah. Uh, it was just before or just after. I can't remember okay. which side of the acquisition it was on, but it was super close. The next day, they called my agency and said, we want to talk to Michael Kaiser. And they were, and they were like, oh, no, what happened? Because like, they knew I wasn't even allowed to go on the, and uh, but this call was coming from St. Louis, and if you know anything about AB InBev and Budweiser, they are two different entities. The people in St. Louis still think of themselves, and rightfully so to some degree, as we are Budweiser, mm-hmm. we are Anheuser Busch. Uh, InBev was the thing that they were angry about having been taken over by. Right, <laughs> like that's that's a hard thing to grasp, but in, in today's world, but that was very true even at that time. So the call came from St. Louis. And they basically said, we want to hire Michael Kaiser to work on a project for us. And they were like, you guys are confusing the hell out of us. <laughs> like, he's not allowed to touch this thing, but you want, like, yeah. And so they were like, just fly down here. We want to talk to you guys. So I flew down there with a partner, talked to Adam Oakley, who was the high-end manager at the time, who is now in charge of Dewar's um, back at Diageo, uh, or Diageo Marketed Brands. I can't remember how that splits up. But anyway, he came from Bacardi, went to the high-end. He was in charge of craft beer. And his basic pitch to me, he's like, I'm in charge of American craft beer, and I'm a British guy who did spirits. Uh, he's like, I need some help like figuring all this out. I've got brand, yeah, brand managers pitching me ideas. I don't really know how to evaluate you know, with the, in the broader cultural sense. Um, and so he's pitching this with my, the partner, you know, the lead, one of the lead partners in my business right there. And we walked out of there uh, asking, like, well, is there a project here for the agency that you're asking about? Or is this a project for Michael that you want help with? And he's like, I don't know. You guys figure that out. You know, he just wanted the help. So yeah. we walked out of there, and my, the partner said, uh, this is not a project for us. It's not an innovation project. This guy just wants personal consulting on what the hell is going on in the beer industry. Uh, he was like, and he was, he was a great guy, uh, Scott Turnovitz, uh, one of the founders of the company. He was like, he's like, I'm not telling you what to do. He's like, but you have my permission to moonlight on this if you want to. I can tell you're super engaged in the beer category. This seems like a cool opportunity. And he's like, if there's a project in there here for us later on, great. It was worth it. And if not, you're starting your own business. <laughs> I was like... Oh shit! <laughs> I just think I think I just got a, a really nice kick out the door. Um, Interesting. So I moonlighted for a bit, and I worked directly with Adam, and this and answered so really bizarre questions like, "What do I do with all these wheat beers?" In, an, in an interesting way, your um, your two halves of your business sort of co-emerged. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. I I, I didn't know that either. That's sort of interesting how they both yeah. came together. That that was exciting for me. Yeah. And 
uh, and to see the biggest player in the world, and you know, I, I have never had any of these sort of like uh, church and state divides like a lot of people do with big and little beer. To me, it's all part of one big fascinating system. And so for somebody like AB to be reaching out and asking me to help them think about the smallest part of what's going on in their industry, I was like, this is great. This is exactly what I do with somebody like Nike or HP or Samsung. Like they want to understand the future disruption and they want to be really smart about it. And they want to, you know, they want to play that card really well. Uh, like absolutely, I'm going to work with this guy and, and work through this because I also want to know what it means at their level. Like what are those factors? What are they? So many companies, especially that size, look at innovation and they get excited about what's happening in the smallest part of their marketplace. And those things never ripple up to become big enough to ever become a factor for their business in a meaningful way. Yeah. And so they get smart about all these things that they never do anything about. Uh-huh. Um, this was a chance for me to do something different and bring them up to speed on something that they could be really engaged with. And on that side of the market, when you're working with breweries, are you mostly working with smaller breweries, or who are you working with? What, and, yeah. what, and what do you do on that side? I don't know that people so that gave have me you talked about that too much. I, I, no, I'm yeah, happy to talk about that. Yeah, That's exciting for me. Yeah. Um, so that, that project enabled me to start the business in consulting and brand development side of Good Beer Hunting, which started really before the blog had any sort of monetary value whatsoever. Right. So I left that, and my first clients were the high-end at AB InBev, back before it was the high-end that it is now. It's a totally different world there now. Um, I would say it's much more compelling now than it was then. Back then, it was very old ways of thinking. Um, so they were that, and uh, Forbidden Root out of Chicago, which was a startup that was trying to do these botanic beers in partnership with Randy Mosher. And they had some cool recipes and some cool ideas, but they didn't really know how to think about it because they were trying to be sort of like craft beer, but sort of this weird botanic thing. And like, they didn't really know where they wanted to fit. And it was my job to help them like articulate their brand position and find their target customers and like think about the future and what they wanted to be. Mm -hmm. uh, so those were the, f I had those gigs simultaneously, basically. And are you, you, you are able to do some design work for these folks too, right? Yeah, so what that's turned into, so it started as basically personal consulting and I was blogging. Uh, and now we are what I would describe as a small design studio. So we build, uh, we launch about a half a dozen new small breweries a year, uh, startups, uh, and then usually about half of those become retainer clients that we work on every day uh, with our group of full-time designers and illustrators and researchers and things like that is like we're helping them grow. And that's the design studio side of the business. So as that grew big enough to be managed and, and to have a, a significant revenue, uh, that became what I did full-time. So I'm now creative director, and I work on the studio side full-time. Gotcha. Uh, I manage, uh, we have Mike Dusenberg, who's our art director, uh, Cooper Foz, who's a designer, illustrator, and then a network of designers and illustrators we work with on an individual basis for different brands. Um, and we have about seven or eight that are full-time retainers uh -huh. um, that we work on them every day. We talk to them every day, whether it's about strategic you know, questions about new markets and distribution and formats, right. uh, or we're executing new labels for them, or marketing materials, or they're opening a new tap room. I leave here on Sunday and drive to Connecticut because this week we're launching Stony Woods or Stony Creek's Foxwoods Casino Brew Pub, which hmm. is their expansion tap room basically. But it's going to be inside of one of the world's largest casinos in Connecticut, uh, and we designed that from the ground up. It's a good place to sell beer, isn't it? It should be. <laughs> we're all betting on it. <laughs> yeah, uh, not to use a casino fun, but right. uh, but that's that's one of the bigger assignments we've had where we we had to come up with the consumer experience and what they were you know what the concept was going to be like there. It's two stories beer garden plus cocktail bar thing and then we designed the thing from the ground up hmm. uh, interiors and all of that and so that's a big deal and so more and more we're we're designing the holistic business not just the strategy not just the visual brand but the consumer experience and the go-to-market strategy and all of that for these breweries and we're growing alongside them you know as some of these are turning two three four years old uh, our practice is expanding to to fulfill the needs that they have uh, as a growing brewery which is really exciting for us like we're 
we basically operate like a like a internal design department for seven or eight different breweries. Right. So then on the other side, you're uh, on the, the the good beer hunting platform. It's yep. not really uh, I don't know that another word actually captures what you do very well. Uh, That's how we think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you are slowly, I, uh, we were in Czech Republic, I think in 2014 and you weren't doing podcasts then, or you'd only started. I don't think I you were doing, it was early cause was I it, did yeah. record with Evan while I was there. Did you? Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, but it was very early. It was, yeah. you know, it was, um, the site could plausibly be described as a blog then. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, uh, not now, <laughs> now it's got Fair. many more moving parts. Um, you have the fervent few, you have. Uh, you know, have a, communi a community component. You have a uh, uh, merch component. You have like all these different things. So, how did that evolve? Yeah, I mean, piece by piece, um, as as the opportunity presented itself, and we understood what it was, and and came up with like, here's how we can meet that need. Um, definitely never went into any of this with like the Voltron in mind. <laughs> like it just it was never a holistic picture at all. Yeah. Started as a blog. Uh, Kyle Kastronik from Ohio just cold called me and said he wanted to write for it, which was the first I first time anybody had ever really pitched me on writing for it. And I was like, well, how do you write for somebody else's blog? Like, that doesn't, conceptually, it doesn't even make sense to me. So he was our first guest writer, I guess. Right, um, yeah. But he was so good at it. His photos were as good, you know, just as good, if not better than mine. His writing was just as good, if not better than mine. I was like, this is a legitimate guy. And he was a designer. He wasn't writing for other publications. He's not a freelance writer. Hmm. He was attracted to Good Beer Hunting because of what Good Beer Hunting looked like and acted like. And right. that, over time, has drawn a lot more people like him out of the woodwork that are not, you know, your typical freelance writer circuits. Um, and so I was getting pitches for articles that were very different than what was showing up in other print mags. Uh, I mean, I, I, I joke, and I don't mean it to be too harsh, but, like, a lot of what had happened in, in beer publications was what happened in, like, men's health magazines, where it's like, every month, here's a new way to get six-pack abs, you know? And it's like, <laughs> it's just the same kind of story over and over again. It's not interesting or new, and certainly not keeping up with what's going on right now in an insightful way. Well, and I think that's, yeah, we can talk about media for hours if we, if we wanted to, but... Um, you know, a magazine is not well positioned for a market that's moving as fast as not at all. as uh, as craft beer is, and, and most of them financially aren't incentivized to be. Right, that's I mean, right. They're just not. Uh, as as this all developed, do you, uh, Austin Ray is your editor? Is that right? Yeah. So now we have Austin Ray is our editorial director. Okay. Underneath him, we have Brian Roth, who's our editorial. Uh, edit He's the editor of Sightlines, specifically sort of like our news and trends section. Uh, Matthew Curtis is editor of the UK. Uh, and then we have a system of about 40 writers and photographers that, that they manage. Now, do you so in a, in a normal magazine setting, you might have uh, an editorial uh, team that thought about what articles you wanted to write, what you wanted to cover. Looking out a few months ahead. Looking out a few months ahead. Yeah. What's it work like for you? Yeah, so we do a little bit of that as we try and like be ahead of certain things. But the stuff that we're ahead on is either uh, breweries that we think are going to become important because of some insight we have now. Right. Uh, so we try and get ahead on that and like, because we want to see the evolution of them. Um, so those will take months to produce sometimes, mm -hmm. but there's, there are slow drip stories. They're mm -hmm. not timely in any particular way. Right. Sightlines uh, covers what's happening right now. Sometimes we'll take, uh, so a great example of that is a microphone brewery out of Elk Grove, Illinois, published uh, on their Facebook that they had published their first ever sour mixed culture beer. And it included Logston, uh, Funk Factory and Hill Farmstead yeast in it. And like they tagged all those breweries. And I was like, huh, I know for a fact that he doesn't know all of those people personally. And some of those people 
such as Hill Farmstead, are not in the practice of giving out their yeast. I was right. I screenshot this. I was like, this is going to be important. <laughs> and if it's not important, we're going to use it as an example of a larger conversation that probably needs to happen around like how yeast is utilized and talked about and certainly marketed because that was kind of a new step to take. Um, and sure enough, within minutes, Hill Farmstead's name was taken off of there. <laughs> I think he got a phone call. The other ones came out in support of it, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And then sudden, and like, and then all of a sudden, Brian Roth is on the beat, and he's calling people, and he's talking to them, and he's getting perspectives from White Labs, and we have this ability now with the people that we have on staff to just be incredibly timely, and and this is the part that most people can't do both, uh, incredibly in depth. Mm -hmm. uh, and that piece ended up being sort of like a state of yeast culture basically on how we talk about this stuff and it was a phenomenal piece um, so we're able to be fast and definitive which is the, the, the combination that most people can't do right um, and a lot of that is about the people that we have and not giving a shit about an editorial schedule or a publication schedule like we're just moving uh, well as a writer in the industry I can also say that um, you know there are fewer and fewer places to write sure uh, they, they don't always pay well and I, I've noticed uh, on Good Beer Hunting a lot of names that used to write for uh, beer advocate draft, yep. all about beer are appearing on on Good Beer Hunting, which is I, I think an, an interesting kind of transition from an old model to a, a newer model. Yeah, I think the thing that caused the transition before all of those people got pinched and started losing folks uh, because of their financial situation was that we were offering them something that they weren't getting at those places, and that is like you want to write three thousand words, we're going to let you, you know, and people are going to read as much of it as they want. It doesn't. We've never existed off of at, like, traditional digital advertising and click rates and things like that. Like, And column space doesn't matter. What's that? Column space doesn't, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Uh, so, like, if somebody reads halfway through that and then bails on it, like, we don't lose anything from that, you know? Right. Um, if anything, we've trained our reader what to expect next time they come. And, like, they get better at becoming a long reader, which is really great for us. Uh, I'm somebody who's always believed, basically, and maybe through, uh, you know, solipsism in that regard that like long reads aren't never going to go away like they're always going to have a value and i see a world in which they might actually increase in value and i think we're finally starting to see that again oh i think they're definitely increasing in value i know that uh on my own site um long reads are the things that uh, google recognizes and yeah. form the archives the backlist yeah. that um people continue to come to for years and uh continue to stay relevant i can have uh we uh, i was actually on Good beer hunting that I saw the the toppling Goliath story for the yep. first time, which I'm sure this is the case with a lot of people. Uh, and I wrote a post about that and got a lot of quick hits, um, and I'm sure you did too because it's a, uh, you know, topical stories like that. It was timely. It was in the news. People exactly. We're interested in what was happening. Yeah. Y you get a big burst of, of hits, but in five years, no one's going to care about that story. Not that at story all. Is going to be dead. So Not at all. It, but the but you know the long reads that you're doing, the deeper dives into. Uh, uh, trends in the industry, different breweries, all this stuff. That's what be stays, that's evergreen and yeah. uh, stays, stays relevant. And it's also the kind of stuff that is not always accessible if it's being put in a print magazine. Absolutely. Some, sometimes that stuff doesn't make it online, or if it does, it's hard to find and just kind of gets lost. Yeah, a lot of those places, uh, even, if they, even as they've tried to transition back to online, aren't doing it very well and certainly not considering the reading experience. Whereas that's always been our home, and so we always worked really hard from a design perspective to make the reading experience really memorable and really like luxurious, basically like large format, you know, typefaces and like give it the space, keep ads out of the way as much as possible, like let people read it like a magazine used to be able to be read. Well, let's talk about ads since you yeah. and I share a sponsor. We do. <laughs> uh, Guinness. Guinness. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, did you encounter Guinness through John Urch? Is that a person uh, we have in common? Is that how I encountered Guinness? 
Uh, That's one way of saying it, yeah. I I mean, mean, he's definitely the connector. For your sponsor, mostly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure you you talk about being... Having other connections to Yeah, I mean, before. he's he's the one that I think has like emerged as like the connector for them to the to the world of beer that he really loves to inhabit and like he really pays attention to a lot of what's going on there and um, yeah, he's 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 their foresight in a lot of ways I think. Yeah. Uh, so my sense is that uh, based on this entire kind of network of stuff that you have going on, you probably don't even really need to have sponsors or ads on there. Yeah, uh, well, yes and no. Okay. So uh, for the longest time, I chose not to do any advertising or sponsors whatsoever on GBH, not out of some sort of purity desire, but um, because I knew that if I started doing digital advertising, it would take a lot of my time to manage that. Totally. Most people don't realize how much time it takes to manage advertising. 100% with you, man. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, I was like, that's a waste of resources for, a dwindle, for an industry where those things are becoming less and less valuable. I was like, I already see that train crashing. I'm not getting on it, and I'm just, I'm just not going to do it. I won't do any sort of advertising or sponsorship until I can figure out how to make it valuable enough to the people who are going to put money behind it that I can get a premium out of it and not have to manage it. Like that is the that's the perfect storm I'm looking for. Right. Uh, so ten or twelve years, like zero. Um, even though people were like concerned that it was all sponsored by somebody, like it was literally it had literally had no <laughs> dollars behind it the whole time. Um, but what made it possible to do that and run it at a complete loss, uh, and we're talking thousands of dollars. Um, was the studio side. So the consulting side and the design work that we were doing, like that was able to run at enough of a premium that I could look at I could look at what was happening on the editorial spend and loss and just say like that's a worthwhile marketing expense for the future, I guess suppose, if I think about it that way, is like people know who we are because of goodbeerhunting.com. And ultimately I get brand and consulting gigs out of it as a result of that awareness. Like that's a virtuous cycle I'm willing to invest in long term. Right. Eventually, once you bring on people, you know, we just kept getting more and more ambitious with it. And there were more people coming out of the woodwork. And, you know, Austin wanted to write for us and a bunch of people like Brian Roth wanted to write for us and all these people that I wanted. I wanted to see their voice in the world in a different way. And I wanted to see that editorial change the industry I was in because I've always been somebody that believed that, like, if I can contribute intellectually to the industry to make it smarter and more interesting and more compelling, then ultimately I'm going to get to do more interesting and compelling and smart work on the back end of that. Like the right. industry is just going to progress. Uh, at some point I ran the numbers and I had paid over $75,000 that year. I think it was 2016 to fund the website, $75,000. I didn't own a home. I had two kids. (laughs) I was, you know, we had one car and we're like nervous about how expensive that was. Did your wife know that number? I told her once I ran the numbers and I saw it, I told her and she understood it. You know, she understood that there was a certain amount of that was worth it. Right. At some point it was not, um, And That's I was a big like, number. Yeah, I was like, I was like, now I'm just one of those guys letting this get away from me, <laughs> and I can't let that keep happening. Because I also, you know, uh, at the time, the designers I was working with were all on a contract basis, part time or something like that, and we were getting to the point where like they needed to become full time and invested in this thing. And like, I was like, we were getting ready for a step change, and I was like, and for for that to happen, the website needs to start paying for itself. Like yeah. now it's time, and I believed, although I wasn't too sure, but I believed that it might be valuable enough real estate at this point that I could pitch an idea that was different than advertising. Um, so I put together, a, it was it was one of those like eureka moments in the shower of like listening to NPR and then being like, and from our underwriters, I was just like, oh, interesting. Like it doesn't have to be this like baseline clickable like thing. Like there are companies out there that want to be a part of conversations that are valuable to them, but not necessarily about them. And I was right. like, and then I remembered the New York Times putting out this like innovation supplement like years ago. It was sponsored by GE. 
and it was brought to you by GE. They were very prevalent in it, but none of the content was necessarily about them. It was just about the space they were in, right. and they wanted to see progressive thinking in that space because ultimately it was going to be good for their business as a category. I was like, I need to put together a package like this for beer, and then I need to find the people who are smart enough, have the money and the foresight to see that as worth it, right? That's a big pitch. Yeah. Um, and so I called a few people that I thought no, I could run no, the idea. It yeah. turns out they're looking for that same stuff. They're, they want their... They want to be associated with things sure. that are reaching the people they're interested in, and, yep. and so there, there is this kind of it's there. natural it's, harmony. It's emerging now, yeah. yeah. And so, so I put together a package of like, here's what our platform looks like, and I'm, you know, I'm offering you advertising across that entire platform as like a one buy for the year. I never want to hear from you about it again. Yeah. Um, so that's just done because I don't want to hire somebody to manage it because then all that money's just going away. Yeah. Um, and I also don't want to hear. I don't want to do reporting for you on what our traffic is. I never want you to ask me about analytics, like. None of that's part of this deal. You just get yeah. advertising as like a bonus. Yeah. Because that's about how valuable it is now. Like almost nobody's paying for it anymore. Uh, certainly not nationally. And this is the interesting thing is everybody's, you know, you hear about how online advertising advertising is killing uh, media. But in, in certain niche environments, it's actually opportunity to, th there are yep. ways in which people will pay a lot of money. The, here's the weird secret about all that is that, you know, if you're a brewery and you're paying to advertise in a publication, chances are they're having to pay to promote that advertisement on Facebook for it to reach enough people for it to quantify what you're asking for from that placement. Yeah. It's just, I mean, every, it's just a, that's a snake eating its own tail. <laughs> like, no thanks. And so, yeah, yeah so the, the deal was, you, yes, you get advertising across the platform, but never ask us about it. Uh, and then the second part was we wanted to do, uh, we wanted to start columns that were going to be expensive for us to produce. Uh -huh. uh, they required travel. They required a lot of sourcing. You know, and a lot of them were intellectual articles that weren't necessarily going to be like gangbuster traffic articles. Yep. Uh, like, but these are the slow burn, evergreen. Like, this is content worth investing in for the industry. Uh, and so, for example, um, one of them, you know, th so the the one we did with Guinness was called um, uh, "Coming to America." We were very interested in this new phenomenon of what it, what it must be like to be like a Cezanne Dupont. Yeah. Trying to sell your beer in America when millennials are now coming, you know, or or even younger now are turning, you know, and they're in their young 20s drinking crap beer for the first time, and they think Cezanne is something that the brewery down the street invented. Right. Um, like, we want to write about that, but that's not something that people are itching for. And like, <laughs> right. So we also, did, so that was one of the other requirements, is we didn't want the content we were going to produce under these sponsorships to be about, you know, satisfying a demand for a thing. We wanted to lead the conversation somehow, um, where there maybe isn't a demand or people don't realize they care about this thing. Um, so we wanted to be progressive that way. So... I called a few people, John Irk was among them, and I was like, I just want to run this idea by you, and see, and I want you from a gut level to tell me whether this this makes sense to anybody. And so I pitched it to him, he gave me some really good feedback. Uh, I pitched it to my friend Andrew Emerton at New Belgium, uh, he gave me some really good feedback, uh, and a couple other folks at different breweries. Um, uh, Chad Mellis out of Oscar Blues uh, gave him a rundown of what it, and he gave me some good feedback. So then I went away, worked on the concept, worked on the pitch, you know, worked on the things that I, and, and kind of dialed it in and came back. And, uh, and a couple of them said yes. Yeah. Guinness was the first one. He was like, automatically, yes, we're in for this. <laughs> and, um, and so that was, a, that was a big deal. And for him to introduce me to the people at Guinness that I think that understood what that meant, you know? And people talk about these large companies as monoliths, you know, as like these like faceless creatures. And I'm like, well, they're faceless because you don't know the people there. <laughs> you know, like, the, like I always joke that like when people say, you know, I don't drink AB because I want to know my brewer. I'm like, well, I know the brewer there. And I, and I could drink it and I could think about him, you know, and like, yeah. I don't know, it's, a, it's a funny disconnect for me. But anyway, he introduced me to some great people there that made me believe that they really saw what it was for what I wanted to achieve. And they were behind it. And they basically had zero requests uh, out of it other than what I put in my pitch. 
And one of the parts in the pitch is like, you don't get to say anything about editorial either. Like, right, right. Like you guys are handing over a large amount of money to support this project, and you're basically going to have no say. Uh, and you have to be okay with that. Um, and this is an interesting challenge when you when you operate your own site. Uh, you are both uh, uh, editorial and advertising, and so you have to. Oh, you're you a one to, man shop. You have to make that clear. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Draw that line yourself. Like, that's, that's what it means. That's what it's like to run a small business. Is like there's no department that you don't touch. <laughs> like you have yeah. to touch it all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but it all hopefully in the pursuit of something really valuable and good and like, yeah, it's funny. Like, yeah. All right. So one last question. Yeah. In the Michael Kaiser story. Sure. You still write poetry? Do I still write poetry? Uh, so yes and no. Mostly no, because like, <laughs> where does that time happen yeah, anymore? Yeah. Um, but I have written a couple things recently that like, I don't hate. Like you know, they're rusty and they're clunky, and I'm like, this is pretty amateur. But uh, but I you know, send I send it to my wife and a couple of friends, and like, and they thought it was interesting, and that's been nice. I've actually gone back and read some of my older stuff recently. Uh, some of the stuff that you know got published, and and other stuff that was sort of like maybe in the wings. Because um, we're starting to bring back, we're starting to venture into print publishing ourselves now at GBH, um, not with a print magazine model at all. Because I just, I, that, again, that's a train that's crashing. I don't want to get on, um, but with a way to make that sustainable. And so we're starting to explore the sort of like chapbook style thing that I know from my poetry <laughs> days. Right. And I know that that can be done at an economic level that makes sense. Um, and you can do them periodically without an editorial schedule around it. You know, mm -hmm. I don't need to do one every month. Yeah. Um, and so we're starting to venture. We've got we've got a couple of folks that have written pieces for us that were um, that were even so long they challenged GBH's <laughs> idea of what a long read is. I was like, why don't we do an edited down version of this and then do a print piece for this and make it part of a series of things that we start publishing now and charging you know nominal like chapbook fees like five bucks for it. You know. Right. Right. Um, and so we have uh, so we're entering into these relationships now. Where it's like we're gonna. Not only are we going to pay you to write the article for the website, but we're going to split 50-50 for you off the revenues once you know if we ever make back print costs, which right. they know is maybe a big maybe. Um, but we're going to start splitting the money with them on that. So we're starting to become a bit of a traditional publisher that way, uh, which has made me think about the poetry a little bit differently. I'm like, like I wonder if we could sell poetry books in the GBH online store. Like that's where my brain's at. Yes, and, uh, that is spectacular. The answer is no. No, it's it's no, but it's beautiful. You're thinking of that. But sometimes we do that just because. We're yeah. just like that's just who we are, and you're gonna you're gonna be okay with that. And like, we're not trying to present this like this sanctified version of what GBH was for target audience. Like, I save that for <laughs> clients who have a real product they've got to move. Uh, for ourselves, we will sometimes do things that are intentionally antagonistic to 100% of our audience. Um, well, and that's fun sometimes. I I will buy the first copy of the poetry book you. <laughs> put up for sale that. i will definitely do it i guarantee it <laughs> that's very cool uh yeah so that's how it all comes full circle sometimes i guess i it, don't know we'll that's see that's a perfect place to leave this uh <laughs> it was great to talk to you and i appreciate no one knows this if you're listening to it and the audio sounds really spectacular it's because we're using michael's equipment so i thank you for that yeah and uh thank you for the it time was already set up we just had to sit down and hold the mics i know and then i showed you mine and i felt inadequate so this is better <laughs> that's <laughs> that is an uncomfortable yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna let that sit there. <laughs> all, all no, all, no post editing you said. All, that's right. No, <laughs> this is absolutely going on. All, all our podcasts kind of end on an awkward note, so there you go. We we found it. It's one of my favorite things about you. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. All right, so thanks so much. And uh we'll uh catch up with you somewhere down the road. Right on. All right, cheers. Cheers. All right. Well that was Almost the end of that tape. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a little, little straight audio at the yeah, end. Yeah, a little straight audio at the end. Um, 
again, I'd like to thank Michael Kaiser for sitting down with me. Um, I don't know that either of us thought we would be able to uh, talk that long. We both enjoy each other's company, as I'm sure you heard. And I hope you all enjoyed hearing a little bit more about Michael. And and uh, Patrick uh, got to hear that, so now he knows a little bit more about Michael, too. So. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right. Uh, well, as we leave, of course, we have to talk about um, some business. One oh, and before we do that, oh yeah. Uh, while we were inserting that, I looked it up, and indeed, uh, Strata's mother is Perlay. So there you go. Well done. Thank you, old man. I know. Was... Some things stick in my head. <laughs> Those brain cells are still <laughs> functioning, partly. All right. Uh, so uh, uh, thank you very much for listening to the podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us on iTunes. Um, that helps other listeners find us. We, uh, uh, we appreciate that. Uh, please uh, be in touch. We don't have any mailbag and, Sher- uh, mailbag and Sherpa today uh, because of the length of the, uh, the, the interview, but um, we appreciate hearing... Uh, from you, you can email us at jeff at beervanablog.com or you can visit the Beervana Blog Facebook page uh, as well. So please send us questions or comments. Uh, jeff blogs, of course, at the Beervana Blog and he tweets at at Beervana. And this is uh, Patrick who tweets at Beeronomics. And I guess that's all I have to say about you. <laughs> <laughs> what else is there to say? Uh, one final note. Um, my Twitter beeronomics has nothing to do with the beeronomics uh, 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 conference. Is I, that relevant? Is that are they? I get. I, I'm getting so many of these German. I'm getting uh, hit up on these German tweets about the beeronomics conference. Uh, we <laughs> so did, we, I'll just point that out. I think the beeronomics conference is fantastic. Um, yeah, we just had not too long ago the uh, the beervana. Um, uh, uh, Beer festival, which I think is in Wellington, it's somewhere in New Zealand. I think it's in Wellington. Oh right, right. And, yeah. um, that's always a fun time because I get a lot of uh, a lot of New Zealanders. Yeah, uh, I'm getting I'm getting, miss, I'm getting miss, tagged on a lot me. of tweets yeah. that are all in German, <laughs> and I assume they say wonderful things about me personally and and how great I am. But actually, I think they just think that that Twitter must be associated with the conference somehow. Sure. Um, so we had them first. So you that, had Beeronomics first. I had Beerana first. So that's right. Yeah. All you international people. Respect your elders. Yeah, but here I am promoting your conference. So go to the Beeronomics conference. I think it's somewhere in Germany is my guess. And yeah. and, and and please invite me to the Beervana Festival. I would love to come. And invite us, yeah. You don't <laughs> have to invite me to the Beeronomics conference. Actually, I'm quite happy skipping that one. But the Beervana one uh, sounds really cool. So. Yeah, we should definitely. That is a junk that I want. I, I've always wanted to go to New Zealand. So that's like top, top five places I want to go. So yeah, let's make that happen, New Zealand. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go to the hot fields. We'll have it. It'll be a thing. I'm a fan of the flight of the Concord. Does that help? <laughs> <laughs> it is. You know, I heard, this is getting extremely abstruse, but I was listening to a Gil Scott Heron song. Yes. And I realized, oh my God, the flight of the Concords totally ripped this song off. Ah. <laughs> and then that made me respect them even more. That's great. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> in their in their short series, I think it was on HBO, right? They always had. Yeah. They always went to their agent, who was also like the 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 uh, the ambassador for New Zealand. He had posters <laughs> on the wall that said, "Come to New Zealand. It's where they film Lord of the Rings." Right. Anyway, okay. So and we, we say should... let's go there because it's where they filmed Flight of the Concord. <laughs> That's right. So there you are. All right. Uh, uh, cheers, Jeff. All right. So this is going to be interesting because people don't know why we're, we have two glasses. But we do have two glasses, but that's right. Cheers. It's a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> cheers. Cheers.